The following is a conversation with Giannis Papas, a comedian who co-hosted the podcast History Hyenas that I came across when I was researching the Battle of Crete from World War II. He and his co-host were hilarious in their rants about history and about life. The chemistry they have is probably the best of any co-hosted comedy podcast or even podcast in general that I've ever heard. As of a few weeks ago, unfortunately, History Hyenas is no more, at least for now, because all good things must come to an end. But Giannis hosts a new podcast called Long Days with Giannis Papas, plus he has a comedy special on YouTube for free. Quick mention of our sponsors, Wine Access, Blinkist, Magic Spoon, and Indeed. Check them out in the description to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that some of you have noticed that I have not spoken with too many computer scientists, physicists, biologists, or engineers recently. The reason has to do mostly with the risk aversion of many of these folks in the time of COVID, especially as they get closer to taking the vaccine. I'm tested several times a week, and still some people are just more willing than others to have an in-person conversation in these times. I only do these podcasts in person because I look for the possibility of a genuine human connection. I'm willing to sacrifice a lot for that. Maybe it's silly, but I look for the magic that uh, Charles Bukowski writes about in his poem, Nirvana. The magic that is somehow in the air on those rare occasions when two people meet, talk, and you notice that while on the surface you may be worlds apart, you're still somehow woven from the same fabric. I've had that with many guests. Jim Keller comes to mind, but many others as well. I'm an AI person. Machine learning, robotics, computer science is my passion. Trust me, I can't wait to be having more technical conversations again, but I will also continue to mix in comedians, musicians, historians, and of course, wise, all-seeing sages like Giannis Papas and Tim Dillon, just to keep it, as Tim likes to say, fun. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now. I try to make these interesting, but I give you timestamps because I value your time and listening experience so you can skip, but please still check out the sponsors in the description. I'm fortunate to be able to be very selective with the sponsors we take on. So hopefully if you buy their stuff, you'll find value in it just as I have. Click their links in the description. It really is the best way to support this podcast. This episode is sponsored by Wine Access, online store with expertly selected wine. I love it because it lets me explore wines. Steak, red wine, and a good conversation with a good friend is my idea of a perfect evening. My current recommendation is the, and here I tried to pronounce an incredibly beautiful sounding wine, 2017 Segezio Family Vineyards Old Vine Zinfandel from Sonoma County. There's a lot of fascinating things about this wine, including the fact that it comes from small grapes that apparently intensified the flavor. I don't know about all that, I just know it's delicious. To me, there's something about wine that creates a certain kind of atmosphere. You know, without COVID, the plan actually for me was to go to Paris to meet a few people there and also to record a few conversations. And, you know, outside of all that, just meeting certain kinds of strangers over some good food and good wine in Paris, I think is something I looked forward to for a long time. There's a few things I enjoy more than connecting with cool people over a bit of alcohol. <laughs> 
Anyway, get 20% off your first order when you go to wineaccess.com slash Lex. The discount will be applied at checkout. That's wineaccess.com slash Lex to see my wine picks and to get the discount. This episode is also sponsored by Blinkist, my favorite app for learning new things. Blinkist takes the key ideas from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. They also have shortcasts, which are summaries of podcasts. They basically pick some podcasts that are summarizable, which is not this podcast, <laughs> or at least I don't think so, and uh, certainly not the long-form podcasts like uh, Joe Rogan Experience and so on. I think an exciting life, a productive life, a fulfilling life is one that includes books, or at least a lot of learning. And I think long-form reading, <laughs> aka books, is actually one of the deepest ways to think through a subject. I don't read just for the reading, I read for the thinking. So Blinkist is almost like an introduction to the book. And the book itself is a deep dive and a chance to really think. Anyway, go to Blinkist.com slash Lex to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership, which is what they want you to get. That's Blinkist.com slash Lex. Go there now. This episode is sponsored by Magic Spoon, low-carb, keto-friendly cereal. It has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four nine grams of carbs, and 140 calories in each serving. This month, they're bringing back the OG blueberry flavor. My favorite flavor is still cocoa, but uh, blueberry is pretty good too. And there's some good news for our Canadian friends up north. They now ship to Canada too. In fact, I'm quickly making a bunch of friends in Canada, and I definitely need to travel to Canada soon. Uh, one of my favorite cities in Montreal, but I also need to go to Toronto and also a bunch of smaller towns as well. In the machine learning space, in the computer science space, physics as well, there's so many brilliant people over there. I just love Canada. So I can't wait until COVID is over and we can travel again and meet some cool people again. Anyway, Magic Spoon has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it, they'll refund it. Go to magicspoon.com slash Lex and use code Lex at checkout to save five bucks off your order. That's magicspoon.com slash Lex and use code Lex. This episode is also sponsored by Indeed, a hiring website. I've used them as part of many hiring efforts I've done for the teams I've led. The main task is to quickly go from a huge number of initial applicants to a short list of great candidates. I've been in the process of hiring a few folks to help me out with this little side project of mine with the podcast and the videos and all those kinds of things. But if I decide to also go on that old, painful, entrepreneurial journey, I will definitely need to be hiring in a whole nother scale. And it's, of course, obvious to say, but the most important aspect of creating something special is hiring the right kind of people to create that special thing with you. And I'm not just thinking about what's good for a business. I'm just thinking about happiness and fulfillment. There's few things as awesome as uh, working on a team where all of you are rowing in the same direction and uh, it just feels good to wake up in the morning and look forward to the day because there's just a right combination of passion and excellence to where you just might get a chance to create something special. Anyway, right now, get a free $75 credit at indeed.com slash Lex. It used to be slash Friedman, 
That still works, but they made it easier with the slash Lex. Indeed.com slash Lex. That's their best offer anywhere. Get it at Indeed.com slash Lex. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash Lex because they have lost all faith in your ability to spell Friedman. This is the Lex Friedman podcast, and here's my conversation with Giannis Pappas. You've co-hosted, until recently, an amazing history comedy podcast called uh, The History Hyenas. So you're a bit of a student of history? Yeah, uh, an F student of history. F student. Yeah. Okay, I thought it was more like a D minus. D minus, yeah. Okay. Still got to repeat the grade if you get all D minuses. I actually had a .67 GPA average my freshman year, and I had to do it again. This is this podcast is going to be the spectrum of human intelligence. This it runs the, the gamut spectrum. from there to here. Yeah. So this is going to set the low bar. For I'm barely anything. sliding into human. I'm closer to chimp. And I uh, bring that up that you're also friends with uh, the great, the powerful Tim Dillon. So let's talk about power and the corrupting effects of power. Sometimes I I look at Tim Dillon as he grows in power. Oh, I thought you meant he's in size. Uh, well, that, size, I think they're correlated. <laughs> yeah. I saw him. I've been in Austin a couple days. I saw him once. We had eight meals in one day. Eight meals. Yeah. He, so I feel like I've been here longer than I have just because of the meals with Dylan. <laughs> Kid likes biscuits and barbecue. Okay. So he's more like, see, I was I was imagining Putin or somebody like that. He's more like the North Korean uh, dictator. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. They so, get along great, those two. Yeah. They would get, I mean, Tim Dillon and King John Um would be like, they could make like a buddy cop movie. They would yeah. get along like Lethal Weapon. That great. would be a good pitch movie. Great podcast. Yeah, that would be a great podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so much to talk about. So many similar ideas about the world. So what do you think the world would look like if Tim Dillon was given absolute power? He seems like a person that's an interesting study of the corrupting effects of power. Yeah, you don't want to give him power. You don't want, I don't even want him wearing a suit. Like I want a guy who's as thoughtful and educated as you wearing a suit. Like, cause you know, suits corrupt you. You put that suit on, you start feeling yeah, that power. You start, definitely. it's like, you know, yeah, I don't even want Tim Dillon in a suit. Power would, he would kill people. He'd get rid of anything that he deemed. I mean, if you made a lobster roll and it wasn't up to Tim Dillon's standard, he would have you executed. The entire would, restaurant staff is he, just gone. He would have people below his food standard executed. There'd be programs, not of people who are political dissidents, but of people who don't meet his food standard. His cuisine standard is high, and he's usually right. Do you think power does corrupt people? Yes. Like one of the reasons we mentioned offline Joe Rogan, he's been an inspiration to me because he gets, <laughs> he gets, forget power, just more famous and famous. And yes, probably a bit of power in terms of influence. And he's still pretty much the same guy. I'm not sure that's going to be true for everybody. Do you ever think, ask yourself of that question? Yeah, he's a rare breed. He's like a benign king. I've, I've, most people I meet who are like really powerful are like douchebags and that's how they got there. I think that's psychopaths have the advantage because they don't have feelings. And Joe's a rare example. He's just a powerhouse of will. And uh, he, uh, I do think about that. Yeah, I think um, I should be stopped right now. <laughs> just stop me right now because, yeah, power for me, I would, when people get power, they indulge. I don't think it changes anyone. It just reveals your darkest, 
Yeah. You know, people aren't supposed to have anything they want. You got to be able to struggle for everything. So I would have a harem. I, I'd be like a Roman dictator. Yeah, I'd be like a Roman emperor. I mean, people call them emperors. They were dictators. The most effective leaders are dictators. I hope we get back to that. Democracy hasn't worked. I'm ready for a secession of Caesars, and I want to start with AOC. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. Dictators get the job done. They do. They do. At certain point, you got, that's why social workers can only get you so far. You need action. I was a social worker for five years and all you do is ask about medications and you don't solve anything. I do ask myself of that, like, because I'm more in the tech space of constructing systems that prevent me from being corrupt. Because right now I'm all about love and all about those kinds of things. But I wonder, you said like it just reveals the darkness. The, the the problem is we might not be aware of our own darkness. I have the same feeling about money. Actually, I've been avoiding thinking about money, like basically constructing my moral system, my moral compass around money. So, like the moment I feel a little too happy, but about the idea of owning some cool shiny thing, I start to think, okay, I'm not gonna own that shiny thing because I'm afraid of the slippery slope of it. Yeah. You ever think about that kind of stuff? Yeah. The, the funny thing about our the capitalist system is it's uh, it's um, it puts sort of a profit motive above beauty. And you notice when you see certain cities, especially in the old days where like buildings used to be beautiful yeah. and uh, now they're just like boxes, they throw a kit up and it's just for all profit margin. It's, um, it's the illusion of permanence that... Uh, you know, it's like, oh, let me get as much money as I can. You're like, yeah, you know, my dad used to say, you know, everyone, it's a cliche, but you can't take it with you. So it's kind of, it's it's comical to me that we're here trying to get this infinite amount, like that we're climbing, it's like it's Sisyphus. We're all trying to climb this hill, but I mean, the rock's going to fall on us. So I think that's a healthy outlook. Yeah. My dad always used to say before he passed, you know, he would say, you can't, you have to survive not only physically, but you have to survive emotionally. I think a lot of people forget about the emotional part of uh, survival, you have to survive emotionally and humor and 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 uh, understanding reality in its objective context helps with that. Accepting reality as this ephemeral uh, thing that you're in really just a part of, but not as significant as your ego wants you to believe is a, is a start. That's a good foundation for surviving emotionally. What, what's that mean, surviving emotionally? Like what? What's an ideal life look like for yeah, you? Can't thriving. Take, you can't take things too seriously. You can't um, because they're ephemeral. They're they're not permanent. Nothing's permanent. Your bank account's not permanent. Your problems aren't permanent. Uh, nothing's permanent. Your abilities aren't permanent. Um, your memory's not permanent. Your 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 dick getting hard's not permanent. Can I curse on this or is this go out to jail? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you can curse to your heart's content. Okay, yeah. I mean, gender's not even permanent anymore. I think I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna change maybe and live my second half as another gender just to have. I'm bored with this gender, so well, it's like nothing is permanent, and so accepting that emotionally uh is a good start to being more flexible you got to be flexible like uh you know, my dad used to say anything too stiff snaps you gotta you know it's a cliche and people have said it a bunch of different ways but bruce lee's right man be water be water <laughs> <laughs> yeah bukowski has this quote about love that love is a fog that fades with the first light of reality so he's, he's a romantic that guy yeah. uh but that even love is a thing that just doesn't last very long no um you know, some people would disagree with that. Maybe it morphs, like 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 water. It changes, right? It might not be. It might not be this because he's mostly just 
uh, loved like prostitutes, I think. So hit the best kind of love, yeah. <laughs> no demand, no uh, responsibilities. Yeah, it's a no financial problem. transaction. Yeah. Uh, eph ephemeral as ever. You mentioned your dad, he passed away uh, two, uh, a year and a half ago. Yeah. What did you learn from him? I love my dad. My dad, I would say my dad was my my hero. He was just, uh, my dad really embodied those values. And I think um, for better or worse, it's made me who I am. He's, he, uh, my dad was, was a painter. He was a lawyer. He was, uh, he was uh, you know, a lieutenant in the military. He New Yorker? New Yorker, born and bred, Brooklyn. His dad, his dad, you know, uh, surprise, owned a diner. So that's. <laughs> That's sort of the Greek passport. Uh, that's the immigration passport for Greeks into America. And um, yeah, my dad played football. He just, my dad did what he wanted. He lived as he wanted at all costs. And I think I got that from him for better or worse. I think it's hurt me in my pursuits. Uh, if, if you consider money and fame uh, to be paramount, you know, I, I've always done what I wanted. And if I stop wanting to do it, I just stop doing it. And I think I got that from my dad. So maybe for better or worse, that's what I learned from him. But that's a real currency, you know, feeling like you're in love with what you're doing when you're doing it. Maybe perhaps that's worth more than money. I don't know. You miss him? Yeah, every day, every day. But I'm happy that uh, he he got 91 years. It's so very rare. rare. I mean, he smoked for 60 years. Talk about like a guy who was an outlier. I mean, he smoked like 60 years, like packs. I mean, yeah. And he didn't die from that. He died, he had uh, prostate cancer, which is the way men should go. Your dick should give out. It should start from the dick. I mean, we focus so much of our life on the dick yeah. that that's the way, that's a successful life. And that's why every man eventually gets prostate cancer because that is the universe's way of saying like, the thing you focused on the most is, you put the most energy into is the thing that's spent. <laughs> and it's gonna, your, your rotting is gonna start there. So that's a successful life. <sighs> and it just spread all over his body and he slowly died. I was with him when he died and that meant a lot to me because me and my brother weren't talking at the time because we're Greeks. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're talking again, but that's how it is. You got a few brothers, right? I got two brothers, but I wanted to make sure I was with him uh, when he died and I got lucky and I was in the room with him when he died. You were in the room with your brother and you weren't? No, my brother wasn't there. We were kind of doing shifts. I was I was there. I spent the night the dad my the the night my dad died. He died in the early in the morning and I heard the the death rattle the last breath and it was just I think it was uh I he knew I was there and uh I think that just probably meant something to him and I'm just glad I was there. Does that make you sad that uh life is ephemeral like you said? Like yeah. that that you die? Yeah. What do you think about your own death? You meditate uh, on that? I think it I think the actual if there is a point to life it's to um hopefully not fear death to accept reality. I think that's important. I think so much goes awry in the human condition when we lose touch with reality. Every uh political system that's led to mass murder and everything I think because it's because the the tenets of those political philosophies ended up being utopian. They were detached from reality, detached from nature. And so I think it's it's very important to accept and acknowledge your own mortality. I think it's the foundation for what makes a good person, a moral person, um, a contributing member of society, because it's true. True things should be the foundation of all things. If, right. if, if, if what you believe is based on illusion, you're going to end up doing destruction. Whether that destruction's on a scale of one to 10, you are going to be destructive because it's not real. It's a fantasy, it doesn't exist. See, the thing is, the truth is about 
I don't think you can ever reach truth. Truth is about like constantly digging. And to push back in your idea that you should accept death, I think the more honest response to death, so the least honest is to run away from it, create illusions that help you imagine like there's not a death. Uh, the next is to accept it, but the real honest one is to fear it. Because I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm with uh, Ernest Becker as a philosopher, uh, who wrote a book called Denial of Death. He says that the, like much of the human condition is based in the fear of mortality. That we, like that's, that's the creative force of the human energy. Like Freud said, you wanna sleep with your mother. He said, no, that's not what motivates you. Maybe his mom wasn't hot though, I mean. Or he wasn't Greek, because apparently Oedipal, we, we found we found it all things good and bad. Yeah. You've, thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> thanks. I just don't know if his mom was a looker or not. I mean, I'd have to t Google it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll look up on Google Images. Yeah. No, but I think that honest, as he says, the thing that we run away from is that there's a terror. He calls it like terror. Uh, there's something called terror management theory that's some philosophers after him followed on that we're basically trying to run away from this fear. And acceptance is actually creating an illusion for yourself. Like you can actually accept something as terrifying as this. So he's more with the Stoics. The Stoic constantly meditate on their death. I mean, they. what does that mean? I mean, it's kind of, it's, you know, acceptance of death isn't a thing you do like on a Monday and then you're done. It's a thing you constantly have to meditate on, like reminding yourself like this ride is over. It could be over today. And that's something you're, if you think about every single day. It gives you an appreciation of Woody yeah. Allen movies, at least. <laughs> it gives you appreciation <laughs> of basically everything, including Woody Allen movies, which shows you how deep your appreciation for life could be. I've actually haven't been following much about what Woody Allen's, but apparently he's been a troublemaker through my, most of his life. He's, yeah, I mean, you know, he's caused a little bit of strife. He's left a little, uh, yeah, he's left a little confusion in his wake, for sure. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's another one. Separate the art from the artist. He's got, I mean, the guys will go down in history as the greatest. He's made, I mean, a movie a year, and they're all, you can always find something good about each movie, like the dialogue or whatever. Um, I love what you're saying. It's interesting. But the only thing I would say to push back a little bit, since we're playing a little table tennis here, yeah. is um, I don't know if it's a choice to fear death. That's more of an, it seems more instinctual. It seems like something that nature wants you to do because I've been in positions where I thought I was going to die. Like I've been shot and I had those moments. And then nature also, uh, you know, kicks in an instinct, which is acceptance, where you kind of, uh, I don't know, it's a chemical release or whatever. I don't know, you know. <laughs> we're all we're robots basically so yeah. some sort of chemical is released that protects you but there is an acceptance i don't know how much uh of it was a conscious choice probably very little um and that's the point i'm making is it's it's instinctual we don't really have a choice in fearing death otherwise there would be no progression we wouldn't all life seems to want to survive uh not by choice but by instinct so he, he argues that the fear is not the instinctual level, it's not the animalistic stuff. That's the thing that makes us special, is the what humans are able to do is to have a knowledge that we're going to die one day. Animals don't have that. Animals' fear is instinctual. Right. It's like, holy shit, what's that sound over there? He says we're actually able to contemplate the fact that this ride ends. And that that kind of cognitive construct is difficult for us to deal with. Like, what the hell does that mean? Like. Just to just to think about 
is going to be over at, at a certain point. Like it's just over, lights out. Like to, it's very difficult to kind of load that into whatever this like little brain we got. Like, what does that actually mean? Maybe that's what gives everything meaning. Yeah. Because if everything lasted forever, if uh, if this went on ad infinitum, there would be no meaning to it. I'd be like, hey, if I don't see you tomorrow, I'll see you in a million years. Yeah. There would be no meaning. There'd be no urgency. There would be no feelings. There'd be no uh, nothing of magnitude or superficiality. It would all just be this kind of, it would be torture. It would actually, that would actually be torture to be here forever. I mean, I'm already sick of this place and I'm just in my forties. <laughs> like I'm done. Yeah, I'm know, sick of me. I'm sick of everything. <laughs> you know, I would, a lot of people, when they talk about immortality, they consider they consider mortality appealing because you get a chance to do basically all these things you might not get a chance to do otherwise, like all the kinds of travel broadly, explore, read every book, explore every idea, do every hobby, all those kinds of things. Somebody else I was talking to mentioned uh, the reality of being immortal would be more likely, I like this idea, more likely would be you just sitting there doing nothing because, and putting off all that travel and exploration till later because you'll always have time. And so what you're gonna have, what actual immortality would look like for a bunch of humans is people sitting there doing nothing. It'll be like a Greek caffeinia, just sitting around <laughs> drinking coffee, watching, yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a lazy man's <laughs> paradise, yeah. But it's so interesting because that that's that rings true to me for what humans are like is we'll basically just put off all those exciting adventures and just be lazy, become lazier and lazier and lazier because you'll always have a chance to do all the exciting things, and we'll just get we'll, we'll basically become Tim Dillon. We we'll just sit there <laughs> and have a podcast, and that's it. He works hard. Um, yeah, yeah I does. mean that sounds actually like heaven, dude. That's speaking of my heart, really. I mean, <laughs> I'm at heart. I'm a very lazy person. I always. Tr try to find ways to lie down. Like if I'm sitting, I'll figure out a way to kind of contort myself to lay down. That's an interesting thing to like, In yeah, if you can always push something off, yeah, that I like that. I, I, I think that's heaven. And- um, See, we, we just changed your mind. You kind of like the immortality. Yeah, I kind of like it. No, so there'll be no thirsts, no, you can always put it off. Hey, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna have, I wanna bang this girl. You're like, I'll put it off. But now I'm thinking about Muslim heaven and they may be offering the best deal. I mean, if it was an expo and they had a booth, I may go with them because they offer they offer 62 or 72, but then I'd get sick of them. I'd want to, I don't know. I always wondered like, are you given the 62 virgins or do you choose, can you create them like an avatar, like a video game? Or are you just given? I don't know what the number, why it's important to have that high number. First of all, I think it's a mistranslation about the virgins, but outside Pro of that, <laughs> outside of that, I feel like the conversation is really important. I, I don't think they ever specify like what kind of books these girls read, like what are they, <laughs> what are they into? Right. Like is you, <laughs> the quality of the conversation, I think if you're talking about eternity, the quality of the intellect and the conversation and the personalities is way more important. And like, the Greeks have an ancient uh, ancient expression, pod metronaristone, which my mother always used to say, which is everything in moderation, nothing in excess. So try and always get the status quo. And uh, yeah, that many women, you, eventually it's like the Magic Johnson effect, Isaiah Thomas effect. You, it's just too much. And you're going to end up, you're going to end up banging a dude is what I'm saying. You're going to get sick of it because it's too much. And there's going to be a eunuch that finds its way into your harem. Yeah. That's been proven throughout history, every empire, 
when you have all that power, and again, this goes back to power corrupting. Yeah. If you have, if there's no struggle, there's no meaning, there's, the value is from the journey, the, the working hard, the struggle. And if it's just given to you because you're a sultan or you're Alexander the Great or whatever, you're going to get bored and you're going to bang a dude. That's, it's, I think that's a scientific axiom, actually. Eventually, you'll yeah. get bored and bang a dude. Yeah, but I think it won't stop there. I think you'll go to animals, you'll go to robots. I mean, eventually it all ends up in robots and then the robots rebel and then the humans will be destroyed. Yeah. I'm uh, sorry. If if, uh, yeah. if we're speaking truth, you said the value of, of life, one of the highest ideals is to seek truth. I think if we're Can being honest. Can I ask honest, you a quick question? If, yes. you, uh, if you live in a small, I come from small islands, right? And so there's a stereotype that that's where they bang animals. But if you come from a very small community, Yes. You know, an island or something, and you have the choice of banging a family member or an animal, which one is worse on the moral scale? Because uh, you're technically not related to the animal. Right. Th this is interesting. I mean, all of these are human constructs, these ideas, but yet for me personally, taboo would be more taboo to uh, to to have sex with a family member. Yeah. I mean, animal, I mean, okay. It's good to know where you stand on that. I think your viewers, you know, that if they didn't have, they didn't know they had that question, I, they just learned a little bit about you and now I know. I look forward to the internet clipping that out. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, there, there is, listen, uh, in, in some, outside of, outside of that, I do think about that a lot. It sounds ridiculous uh, about morality connected to animals in terms of all the the, the factory farming and so on. It seems like that's one of the things we'll look because I love meat, but I kind of feel bad about it, and, and bad in a way where I think if we look like a hundred years from now, we'll look back at this time as like one of the great like tortures and injustices that we humans have committed, and I mean all that has to do with the sex with the animal has to do with consent and about the experience of suffering of animals. The reason I think about that personally a lot, because I think about robotics, I think about creating artificial consciousnesses, uh, artificial like beings that have some elements of the human nature. And then you start to think like, well, what does it mean to suffer? What does it mean for entity to exist such that it deserves rights? This is something that the founding fathers were, were thinking about, like, you know, all men are created equal. What is it? Which, who is included in the men who, who is not in that, in that sentence? And are animals included in that? Are robots? I honestly think that there will be a civil rights movement for robots in the future. Holy I don't, shit. I don't know. Is that the Turing test, the way you try to, is that what they call it? Where you're trying to uh, uh, see if an AI can think like a human or whatever, or feel like a human? Well, it's uh, the Turing test closely defined is more about talk like a human. Uh -huh. So you can you can imagine systems that are able to you can have a conversation like this, and I would be a robot, for example. But that doesn't mean I would in the in society that doesn't mean I deserve rights, or that doesn't mean I would be conscious. It doesn't mean that I would be able to suffer and to uh, experience pleasure and dream and all those kinds of human things. Mm -hmm. The question isn't whether you're able to talk, which is passing the Turing test. The question is whether you're able to feel, to be, uh, I mean, to, I, I go back to suffering. Mm -hmm. The thing that, the, that our documents protect us against is uh, suffering. Like we don't want humans to suffer. And if a robot can suffer, that discussion starts being about like, well, shouldn't we protect them? Mm -hmm. Currently, we don't protect animals. We protect uh, dogs. 
there's laws. There's actual legislation that protects dogs for in torture. certain places. Yeah. And you know what? Dogs is something I don't think people really understand enough about. It's one of my obsessions. So um, they, they, my dad always used to say, those, he goes, those things, are, those things are basically human. And I mean, they dream, they have anxiety. Uh, and what people often overlook about dogs is without dogs, we wouldn't be here. We would not have ever evolved from hunter-gatherer to agrarian to, you know, um, civilization. We wouldn't have cities. We wouldn't have anything. I mean, they are our partner in survival and they are a magical animal. There's no, there's no animal that was, it was like destiny almost. Mm -hmm. I mean, a malleable animal. There's no animal that's that malleable that in a few generations you can tailor to a specific job that you need. And without that animal, without dogs doing that animal, protecting our crops from, from, uh, you know, uh, scavengers and stuff like that, you know, the list goes on, we wouldn't be here. So we, that's an often overlooked fact that human evolution was not uh, done in a vacuum just with humans. I mean, without dogs, we would have never evolved. I mean, we weren't the apex predator for most of our existence. We weren't even the apex predator. I mean, we're getting eaten by hyenas, which is my favorite animal. Um, and, you know, that's kind of an injustice. To, I mean, I'm kind of mad at dogs. That I, we deserve to get eaten by hyenas. But without dogs, we wouldn't be here. And dogs... <laughs> Dogs deserve the protection. So do horses. They fucking lugged us around for thousands of years. And now these fucking German psychopaths are eating them or whatever. We should not eat horse meat just on like, be a good dude, man. These things lugged us around for generations. Yeah. They're beautiful. You know, ride them or I don't know. I don't know. But I, it, it rubs me the wrong way that we eat horses. Yeah, the, the horses one is interesting. And one of my favorite books is Animal Farm by Orwell. And the horses don't get a good ending in that... Uh, I kind of, uh, my spirit animal, I suppose, is the horse from Animal Farm, uh, Boxer, where he says, uh, I will work harder. That's his motto. I, I work really hard uh, at stupid things. That's, that's basically what I did. I just hit my head against the wall for no reason whatsoever. But that it's, probably fulfills, you have a big brain. You were probably born with a big brain that kind of fulfills. It's killing neurons. It's exercise for you. Yeah. yeah. Just, Don't you think some animals deserve to be eaten though? Kind of like. Hyenas? Come on, dude. I mean, the, 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 so you gotta is, respect the hyena. Okay, so let's, let, first of all, let me just comment on the dog thing. There is like conferences on dog cognition from a perspective of people that study psychology, cognitive science, neuroscience, dogs are fascinating. The way they move their eyes, they're able to, they're the only other animal besides humans, they're able to communicate with their eyes. They can look at a thing and look back at you and look back at the thing to communicate that we're all like, through our eyes communicate that we're collaborating. So uh, every other animal uses their eyes to actually look at things. The dogs use it to like communicate with you, with us humans. It's fascinating. There's a lot of other elements of dogs that are amazing. Yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for them, uh, we, they're the ones, they were our first alarm system for predators. They would defend us. I mean, the Basenji is one of the most ancient dogs. I mean, they're tiny, but they're fearless. Yeah. And they would chase off lions. Like, you know, there'd be packs of them and they'd chase off lions and protect the tribes. It's, 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 I even get tingles like thinking about dogs because I, I have a dog. I love my dog. It's just, and there's something about when you're walking with your dog off leash in the woods, it like, there's something about it that's like that, that tugs at that uh, millions of years of evolution, like that gut, you know, it's yeah. like, I had a, a Finnish friend of mine. He's a comic. Tommy Valamis once told me, he was like, uh, he was like the gut. He's like, I, I believe in that, like that gut, you know, when you have that feeling, He's like, always trust that because that is million, those are all your ancestors. That's the survival instinct of all your ancestors at the beginning of time. 
you know, telling you like, hey, something's off here. Something's, you know, so don't get in the car with Ted Bundy is what I'm saying, ladies. How fucking <laughs> stupid. How, who, how can you fall for that? You know, he's got a fucking sling on. Don't get in. Yeah. Follow the gut. And My that, question to you, are psychopaths essentially robots? So first of all, let's not, you're using the word robot in a derogatory way that I feel, no, I'm, 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 I'm triggered by, okay? Yeah, and you, so you I feel should offended. Be. You should be because, you know what? People are always scared of robots, but I, I actually, uh, I have, I've made the sort of, uh, I, I, I've made a decision. Hey, I've, I thought about it. I'm like, robot, robots have been nothing but helpful. It's the people we should be scared of. Right. Again, we're kind of missing the most destructive thing is us. Because, But robots are helpful. I mean, this is a fucking robot. You know, I went on hotel tonight. I'm already booked up. You know, I got my, I can change my flight. If, if this barbecue with Rogan goes 16 hours, which whatever Rogan wants to do, I'll do. If he wants to kick me in the chest, I'll let him kick me in the chest, whatever. Yeah. Um, robots are helpful, no? Yeah. Uh, tanks and autonomous weapon systems don't kill people. People kill people. People kill people, yeah. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Yeah, 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 the NRA's about to click that for you. <laughs> uh, a lot of love for dogs. I appreciate it very much. And at the same time, you have the other thing that people seem to have love for, which is cats. Mm. And on the flip side of everything you've said, I'm trying to understand what have cats ever done for human civilization? They keep rodents away. The domesticated cat is very important. Keeps rodents away. Yeah, that's what they were domesticated for. I mean, they're psychopathic killers who end up killing... Uh, innocent um neighborhood chipmunks and yeah. and birds uh they really affect the uh the balance of the local ecosystem but if so you, you have keep love a, for cats too not as much as dogs i mean yeah. dogs are like you said they look at humans i, I actually read an article there was some people were theorizing they're smarter than chimps because of the way they can work with humans and there was one border collie that spoke like 300 words like a quarter like a lang yeah. almost part of language and their nose is like a mat i mean that's like magic dude if you can smell in my ass to what i had for breakfast from miles away that's intelligence that's intelligence <laughs> i mean in some ways that their nose if you were to put it on a scale maybe their nose is more intelligent than our brain for what it does yeah. you know it's like i mean dude they can smell you from miles away you ever see a dog just like sniffing catching i mean it's smelling like I don't remember the 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 data on it, but it's like they have like millions of receptors or something where we only, you know, thank God we we don't have their nose. That would be that would make sex weird. <laughs> be a little too intense. I think you mentioned when you were talking about Woody Allen separating the the art from the artist. So that brings to mind Vladimir Putin. <laughs> How about that transition? I don't know. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But if, if, you, if you look at just powerful leaders throughout history, Stalin, Hitler, but uh, even modern ones like Putin, and we we're talking about power, how do you explain them? You said uh, that power reveals, not corrupts. But do you think there's some element to which power corrupted Hitler, power corrupted Stalin after he gained power? And the same with Putin. When Putin gained power in 2000, do you think the amount of power that he was in possession was for many years, do you think that corrupted him? I mean, we we're joking about dictators get the job done. There is some sense in certain countries where dictator is um, the only thing that can stabilize a nation. The, the counter argument to that for democracies is like, yeah, but that's a short-term solution for a long-term problem. So you want to embrace chaos of democracy that might be violent 
there might be a lot of uh, just constant changing of leadership. There might be a lot of corruption in the short term, but if you stay strong with um, with the ideals of democracy, then you'll be uh, ultimately create something that as beautiful and stable as the United States. <laughs> <laughs> the the sad thing is, is I don't know if that if history tells that story. It's like I said, you look at Greece, you look at Rome, democracy kind of failed. The majority of Rome, uh, the most successful empire uh, that we've had, um, was a dictatorship for most of its run. So, um, but I do believe in a republic, which is sort of a limited democracy. I do believe in in what we have here. I believe in common law. I believe, um, you know, in individual rights. Um, but yeah, I think you said it. I, you, I couldn't. Nobody could have said it better. Yeah, it's a, it's a short term solution. You look at Saddam Hussein. He kind of, you know, when when we took took him out, then there was a lot of infighting that that happened that he was kind of keeping at bay um, because uh, he was a strong man, dictator. Well, he's an interesting one. Sorry to interrupt. No, from my understanding, I'm sure people will correct me, but when uh, Saddam Hussein first came to power. He was, uh, he's quite progressive. <laughs> so like the, the, as far as I understand, the signs of an evil dictator weren't exactly there. So again, there's, I don't know if power revealed or power corrupted. Or that could have been the initial subterfuge to kind of get everybody, you know, Hitler also is a, you know, champion of the people. Let's build some new roads. It's yeah. what psychopaths do. And that's why it's interesting to me. I'm not sure if power corrupts psychopaths. And now that we know that we can do these CAT scans and brain scans, we know that they're born that way. Power definitely corrupts people who have the capacity uh, to feel and, and for empathy. Power, I'm not sure. I don't think power corrupts people who were born uh, psychopathic with that condition or sociopaths who had, who, who you know, who were closer to psychopath and then had some traumatic life you know, I just think, um, you know, the best way to get away with whatever nefarious thing you want to do to feel, I guess the only thing psychopaths can feel is that excitement, is to pretend to be the opposite of what you are. Yeah. That's what that's what killers do. That's what the worst people do. Look at Bill Cosby. I mean, he was, what better way to hide, you know? It's like what wokeness is now. It's like, I'm such a great person. And they, you're like, are you? It's a great, the best way to hide is to pretend to be the opposite of what you are, just like Ted Bundy. I'm I'm just an innocent, helpful guy, and then boom, next thing you know, you, you're getting your tip bit off. That's really well said. It's it's actually kind of funny because I talk about love a lot, and I think the people that kind of look at me with squinty eyes, they wonder, like, how many bodies are in that closet? You know what I mean? Like, there's something about the duality of like we're so skeptical as a culture. Like, if somebody is just like seems to be kind of sort of uh i don't know positive and all that kind of you know wh how do i put it just simple uh simple-minded in the positivity they express they think like okay, there's some demons in there yeah especially if you're a new yorker we don't trust any the nicer you are the more skeptical we are yeah <laughs> i've struggled with that down here i've been like what, what's your angle and they're like nah dude just i want to show you the best tacos man and i'm like did you really what do you want because in New York, it's like if anyone's nice to you, they want something. Yeah, and that's uh, <laughs> that's the the pro side to that is it makes you very street smart. The downside to that is it makes you way too cynical. Yeah, I definitely experienced that here in Texas. But people are super super nice, and they're like do all this cool shit for you, and you wonder what 
what <laughs> what's the angle? Yeah. What are we doing here? Yeah. You mentioned hyenas is your favorite animal. I yes. forgot to ask you, what the hell were you thinking? Why is hyenas your favorite animal? Yeah, it's um, it's a fascinating animal. And let's uh, let's look at the whole animal kingdom. Like, why is that, where do you put? So you like dogs? Love my favorite. You, your favorite is dogs, mm. but they're kind of outside the animal kingdom because you're thinking about wolves. So the animal kingdom is in nature. Dogs escaped nature. They kind of did, yeah. Uh, together with humans, like in a collaborative way, yes. exactly. So within nature, within the animal kingdom, yeah. what? Who's? Uh, why not lions? Because lions are predictable. Lions are just you know they're regal and kind of they bore me. It's like the hot chick. It's like we get it. You were born the best. Yeah. You know I like a scrappy, by any means necessary, intelligent and cunning. Uh, but aren't they dishonest? Yeah, and that's why I like them. <laughs> yes, they're dishonest. They employ chicanery. Yeah. They, uh, they're, and that's just a sign of how intelligent they are, and how self reliant they are, and how brutal they are. Um, they're brutally honest in how much they lie. Yeah, you know, because it's just, they're trying to get the job done. Yeah. You know, lions are just like they're they're too gifted. Everyone hates the fucking. You know, if I went to school with you, I'd be like, of course Lex knows the fucking answer. Yeah. Lex was born smarter than me. Yeah. You know, and you'd probably hate me because uh, I was the kid always seeking attention and making people. It's like, that's not interesting. The guy that claws his way to the top, and those are hyenas. They're also fascinating just by uh, merely who they are. I mean, they're not related to any other animal. They're more closely related to cats than they are dogs, even though they look oh, more like a dog. Yeah. There, but they're very, like, very tangentially related even to cats. So they're their own kind of thing, which is kind of mysterious. I don't think they fully figured out. And uh, they, the pseudo penis thing is the, is the, I mean, it is Can the. Can you explain the pseudo penis? I... Yeah. So the it's a matriarchal <laughs> society, by the yeah. way. So that's unique in and of itself. That this we're talking about an apex predator that is uh, matriarchal, much like uh, you know the praying mantis. It's very rare though, and they are fucking brutal and vicious and the women are bigger and they let their cubs fight a lot of fratricide and they do that because they're like hey you're weaker they let, I let your brother kill you and uh the women have penises the women have pseudo penises that they give birth out of and the birth is violent but they they roll around with just huge pieces their glue guns are just fucking swinging yeah. you know and the women are just run the show and uh it's just cool that they have these pseudo penises <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's almost romantic the way you describe it. They have it. the strongest bite force. They uh, they pulverize bone. Like when they eat an animal, the animal's gone. There's no bones. They eat everything. They can pulverize. Their bite is so powerful. They pulverize bone and eat it. So if they consume an animal, it the animal was there, and then the animal's gone. There's no nothing for the vultures there to uh to 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 grab. Yeah, I'm gonna have to revisit the hyenas because my experience with the hyenas was from uh, first of all. History of Hyenas, your show, uh, has rebranded them for me. But uh, The Lion King, which is uh, a cartoon, I guess, that uh, I get emotional at every time I, I have, a, I hope, I probably have father issues. Every, every a guy. You probably just have, you just have feelings. You're a good guy. I mean, everyone gets that. Yeah, you have feelings. Oh, that one gets everybody. <laughs> I don't know. I get, I get every father son movie, like Blow with Johnny Depp uh, uh, and, uh, Ray Liotta, damn, that's a good movie. And whenever there's like a, like the disappointment in the father that his son has become like, 
this incredibly successful drug lord that then ends up with nothing in 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 prison. Uh, just the sadness of them communicating through letters, man, that gets me every time. <laughs> <laughs> but just, but you know, uh, the the hyenas are not presented that well in that. Um, no, they're usually that. portrayed as like uh, it, it's really sad that they're portrayed that way. And lions, like lions, aren't dicks. Lions are dicks. They the 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 alpha lions will kill the cubs of another rival. They do all types of dick shit. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, uh, the hy- hyenas are more interesting. Like they'll just roll in like a hyena will like, like you said, the lie, you know, cause it, when you watch the Serengeti, you know, animals will hang out with each other. They're like by water. So one hyena will just kind of roll in and pretend like it's not hungry. And then bang, they'll use any means necessary to take an animal down. Like yeah. lions will just use brute strength. Hyenas use cunning and you can even go on the internet and find uh, memes of this where hyenas will grab the big animal by the balls and just like will sneak up behind it and bite its balls. And you'll watch an animal 10 size, ten times the size of the hyena just slowly go down. It's brutal, but it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that's uh, – I don't know if you uh, follow the, the, the channel um, Nature's Metal. That, yes, that one weighs heavy on me. Um, with the hyenas and the balls, I, it's tough to to intellectualize it. It's tough to think that the entirety of life on Earth has this history of uh, predators being violent, just like just the murder that we come from. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I, it uh, just like we're talking about meditating on death. I, I actually I keep following and unfollowing that. Instagram channel because like sometimes it's too much. Like I can't, I can't continue with the day after like seeing the brutality, the honest brutality of yeah. that. I don't know how to make sense of it. It's important to acknowledge, I think, because that it's real. We do come from that. We are, we evolve from that. It's important. We still do that. We're just hidden from it. You know, when you go to the supermarket and get your slab of meat, and you know, you're so disconnected from where that meat came from. It came from that, and often that's uglier to watch. Then, because there's some honesty, you know, the the the, the nature channels only show. Uh, that's why we have so much sympathy with the prey, and this is where I think the same thing with mafia movies. They don't show what the mafia really does. They glorify the good parts. That's why I like State of Grace because it's really just shaking down old people and fucking being dicks. It's not driving nice <laughs> yeah. cars and being like you know. So and and animal channels do the same thing. They only show when the cheetah gets it because that's that's the exciting part. But what most people don't know is that those predators strike out almost always. A majority of the time, the prey wins. And so if you saw that and put it in context, you might not hate it as much when the predator actually gets the little fawn or whatever, because it's so many fawns got away. It's so hard to capture your prey. And, you know, we, we don't have the, 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 they, no, no documentary is going to sit around and show you the yeah. 99 times the cheetah uh, didn't catch. That's, thank you for this perspective. That's murder is difficult. So like, this is the, they never talk about no. for people who murder, how difficult it is. Like it's the, tough. <laughs> you know? To trap somebody, to convince them to come back to your place. Give it some respect. The, Put some respect the, on the, Ted Bundy's name. Yeah, the, it's the, not the, easy to convince somebody to get in your Volkswagen Beagle and-, and The then, cleanup. And then you, you have to kind of plan ahead because you want to keep doing the murder, mass murder. You got to learn how to saw them up, put them in duffel bags, bury. You got to learn how to dig. You got to learn how to hide. You got to learn to lie. I mean, it's a lot that goes into it. 
Yeah. That we need to put a little respect on. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to figure out which tools work the best yeah. uh, for the song and all those kinds of things. <laughs> um, uh, so th thank you for the perspective. That's what, <laughs> that's what I was hoping we would bring to this table. That's what uh, I'm here for, yeah. <laughs> so you, uh, are, you got a little bit of Greek in you. Uh, one of the episodes on, on uh, History of Hyenas, you talked about the Battle of Crete, where the Greeks, your people, in uh, uh, in 19, I guess, 41, in the early stages of the World War II, there's one of the most epic battles of the war. Uh, in fact, in 1941, in a speech made at, at the Reichstag, Hitler paid tribute to the bravery of the Greeks, saying, it must be said, uh, for the sake of historical truth, that amongst all our opponents, only the Greeks fought with the endless courage and defiance of death. So, okay, what do you make of this battle? What do you make of the spirit of the Greek people? This is one of the closest things to me because my mother was actually on the island of Crete during this, the first aerial invasion in history. A lot of people don't know that. So this is a very significant battle. Um, first time there was an invasion from the sky. Um, and uh, my mother was a little girl and she lived through four years of uh, Nazi occupation there. So my mother was a human rights lawyer and everything, but she just always hated Germans. It's just what it is. She hated Germans and, and she never got over it. So the most progressive, open-minded woman just could not get over this. Um, it's a monumental battle that a lot of historians in retrospect have now looked back on and said, because the Nazis, first off, you got to take it back to when Hitler instructed Mussolini, because let's be honest, Mussolini was Hitler's bitch. You know what I mean? It was like, if it were, you know, if it was Fantasy Island, Hitler was the fucking, and the, and Mussolini was boss, the plane Mussolini guy. ever say no to Hitler? Or even maybe, it's always like, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes, we will do it. And uh, it's like, yeah, it takes, you have to take Greece. And so, um, yeah. So Italy being uh, much bigger than Greece, Greece is a tiny country, nine, yeah. 10 million. So Italy invaded Greece, um, you know, um, and Aki Day's a big, it's a big holiday for Greeks. And this speaks to the spirit. Greeks infight until we have a common enemy and then we unite. You see it throughout history, Sparta and Athens. You see it in Greek families <laughs> where the brothers will fight. But then as soon as we have a common enemy, we unite. And maybe it's an overactive brain. We think too much, our, our traditions, philosophy, and we overthink things and we fight with each other and take things personally. We're ultra passionate. But when Italy said, hey, we're going to move troops through, you know, uh, a Greek said Aki, which means no. And that was, um, and then Italy attacked and uh, we beat the shit out of them. A much bigger country, much uh, more well-equipped country. Greece beat the shit out of them, kicked them back into Albania, actually not only repelled them, actually like conquered some ground in Albania, pushed them back. And then Hitler was like, fuck, you know, I was planning my march to Russia uh, but I have to go down because he basically said to Mussolini, like, you know, you basically bitch slapped him, like Fredo, <laughs> like I got to do this myself because yeah. you're such a fucking bitch. Yeah. So then the Nazis invaded Greece. Obviously they took the mainland with fight and shout out, the Greeks never give credit to the British and New Zealand and Australian troops that were there. You know, they were a large part of this, the majority of it, but the Greeks fight, dude, civilians. I mean, they fought. You know, the Ottomans were there 400 years. You go to Greece now, there's no evidence. There's virtually no evidence of them ever being there. That's the Greek spirit. Kick them out and we kicked out hummus too. So it's like <laughs> your culture's gone, you're gone. Because yeah. Greeks are 
uh, it's philoptimo. It's called philoptimo, and it's a real thing. Philoptimo is a uh, very little trans. You can't translate it, but it's kind of like honor, loyalty, friendship, uh, altruism. It's a. Uh, it's you can't define it, but Greeks know it, and we're taught it from our from our uh, families. It's a vibe, man. It's a Greek cultural thing, and we're an old culture. And philoptimo is what it's called, philoptimo, and it's a. Uh, it's love, it's passion, and it comes out, and it comes out. And so, um, so Hitler had to postpone his invasion of, um, of uh, Russia, went down. The island of Crete took 10 days to conquer. It's an island. Mm -hmm. To put that in perspective, the country of France fell in three or four days. I can't even remember because they fucking just rolled over. So what is what, what is a couple hours matter when you're that much of a fucking pussy yeah okay what is a couple hours 12 hours fucking three or four days uh, the island of crete yeah took the germans 10 days to conquer and because of that and because of the greek resistance hitler had to postpone his invasion of russia to winter and of course that was you know that was his downfall just as it was napoleon's and uh, never dude never try to invade russia they got millions of people to throw at death Every time you read about Russians in history books, like, and a million died. I mean, it's like, you just guys throw millions of people at the problem and don't fuck with that Russian winner and don't fuck with Russian people, dude. They're tough. People in New York know that. You don't go to fucking Sheepset Bay and start talking shit. You'll end up in a fucking car trunk and they'll brutally murder you. I do not fuck with Russians. Amen. <laughs> and then there's, I mean, there's a lot of people, a lot of historians argue that that battle was because of the Russian winter, because of delaying the Russian invasion, but also psychologically delaying the invasion. It was the first time, I think it was the first time the Germans failed, not, or didn't succeed like they wanted to early in the war, which is a little like psychologically, the impact of that I think is immeasurable. And also a lot of people argue from a military strategy perspective that the just like you said it was an aerial attack and that hitler didn't think that 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 kind of attack would then be useful for the rest of the war so that's that's a really part where whereas it might have been very useful so it's uh it's really interesting how these little battles can steer the directions of war of course me growing up in the soviet union we didn't hear much about this battle uh just like you said millions of soviets died all those people in history that you read about dying, those are all civilians, but I mean, not all, but a very large number of them are civilians and their stories, obviously, that's the rooted, the literature, the poetry, the music, just the way people talk, the way they drink vodka, the way they love, uh, the way they hate, the way they fear, that's all like rooted in World War II and World War One, And so, but we never kind of think about Europe and we certainly, growing up didn't think about their role in the United States. All this, there's plenty of stories of heroism in uh, in the Soviet Union, enough to, enough for many lifetimes. So, but it was fascinating to read from a Greek perspective because uh, I, you know, I don't have many Greek friends. I'm hoping to change that. Uh, there we, this is the beginning of a, a love affair <laughs> of your people. <laughs> Uh, yeah. That, know, likewise, the Americans don't hear about the Soviet contribution to the end of World War II because obviously we became, you know, enemies after that because of the two systems. But yeah, without the Russians, World War II wouldn't have been won either. Yeah, the stories are written by the victors. That's really interesting. I, I just looking at the at history, you wonder what's missing. I'll tell you what's missing that I know for a fact 
Because my dad told my dad uh, told me combat's hell, and he would tell me the reality of what it's really like. Guys pissing themselves, calling for their mother. The the fog of war, obviously, fratricide happens all the time. It's pandemonium. I mean, there's skill involved, but I mean, there's no like. It's a lot of it is just luck. My dad said he. My dad won three. He got you know medals, purple hearts, all that shit. And he said the reason was is because he can't. He always said this. Is another thing he told me: you can't pin a medal on a dead guy. So he's like, those are the guys who deserve it, but you can't pin a medal. You can't do the pomp yeah. and with. And um, I'll tell you one thing is that uh, it is written by the victors and all these leaders, they say we're in the front. We're not in the front. We're not, le- whenever the history books say he led his troops into battle, it's like, did he really, hmm. did he? Yeah. So then how did he live? Cause they put like kids in the front, you know, it's like nobody limps back from the front with like a injury. You know, that's, that's army PR. It, you know, whenever you read, uh, you know, uh, 27 soldiers died, 14 were injured. The, the word injured is PR. That's like injured. Was he? Did he sprain his ankle? <laughs> did he need? Yeah, did he get carried off the court? Or, you know, he was maimed. I mean, yeah. he was like his leg was blown off. You know, it's like. Yeah. So uh, I think that you know Alexander the Great was just kind of in the back on his horse and just kind of <laughs> he had his eunuch blow him a few times and he was like, "Is it bad up there?" And then like after that he was like, "Okay, when, my scribe, give me my scribe. Okay, when you write this down, can you put me in the front?" Yeah, and I was just make me a big hero, and I was in there, and then he, you know, he just blew his, you know, he had sex with his eunuch and rode off into the sunset because there's just no way you survive in the front, especially warfare back then. I mean, it's like brutal. Then again, you have like uh, Genghis Khan. The sense I got that he was a little bit up on the front, at least at first. Yeah. Or is that also, is I he a little bit of Give me my scribe. Yeah, it's all lore. I mean, you ever play the game of telephone? You know, it's like, you know, there's no video cameras back then. So shit just get, turns into myth, you know? And uh, there's no way he was in the front. There's no way he wouldn't have lived. You know, he was probably good on horseback because those those dudes were good on horseback. The, it was like Game of Thrones back then. You had all these different people and they kind of, yeah, the, the 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 Mongols were wild, dude. They actually said like, um, they started like, they were more adaptable to the horse because they were so good on horseback that kids started to be born like kind of bow-legged like yeah. to fit the horse. It's wild. And they would stretch their heads and shit like that. They'd wrap them and stretch their heads so they find like Mongol skulls and the, they look like cone heads and they were brutal and vicious. And they would maraud and rape and all the fun stuff that, you know, when you know when you visit other places back then, there's no tchotchke stops and souvenir shops. What you do is you take women and those are the tokens, you know, you burn a few huts. Different. Yeah. Tourism was different back then. <laughs> yeah, I, that's another difficult thing. Just we're, we're talking about nature and predators to think about the long stretch of history where it was just murder. Yeah. And we made so much progress I guess, in the past couple of centuries. The United States is a shiny example of that. But do you think also that it's that effect that we were, a lot of good things had to happen too, or else we wouldn't be here. So do we just focus, isn't it like a car crash effect? That like we're just, you know, the the rubberneck who everyone pulls over to see a car crash. Are we just only focusing on the negative things of history because they're just more exciting to us? Like, it's just not, it's boring to be like, yeah, and then there was a bunch of villagers and they ate every day and danced and, and loved, Did, yeah. yeah. I, I wonder, I wonder how different those people were. You know, like they might have had the the same exact loves and fears, and, and like they they perhaps had the same kind of brilliant ideas in their head, if not more brilliant. And we kind of think about like this moment in history is like the most special moment. Like we're doing the coolest shit. 
that were doing the most amazing, building the most amazing things, but maybe they were building amazing things in their different way with like less technological, but in the space of ideas, in the space of just all the different, the camaraderie, in the space of um, like concepts, uh, mathematics, all those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Greece, you look at the architecture, it still stands up. I mean, all the government, but it's still arguably, I mean, as far as objective beauty, it's hard to argue that Greco-Roman, it's just something about it with the with the columns. It's just, it's powerful. It's, I don't know, even Ayn Rand would probably appreciate it. Would, she know. doesn't, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so in your uh, history of hyenas, that unfortunately has come to an end. Yeah. We're talking about empires coming to an end. All yeah. empires fall. Yeah. Um, that one, um, well, it may rise again. Empires might rise. Who knows? Who knows? I, I'm obviously a fan, so I hope it does rise again. But you've uh, seemed to develop your own language. Can you, uh, you know, it's what it is. <laughs> What is what is that? What, what, what the hell um, I think, is, is this? Some kind of medical condition, or can you can you explain like the linguistic essentials that uh, catch us up to the linguistic essentials that people need to know to understand yeah. the way you speak? Uh, you ever you know Leopold and Loeb? You know the story of those two? Uh, they murdered that kid, and they had this weird relationship. Uh, anyway, it's an interesting thing to Google Leopold and Loeb. These two guys who ended up murdering a kid because they developed their own language with each other and uh, this own reality and this weird thing. And they wanted to know what it's like to murder a kid and they murder a kid. It's a famous story in American lore and history or whatever, famous case. Um, but this phenomenon, yeah, me and Chris got together. I, I, it wasn't as dark as Leopold, no, we didn't murder yeah. a kid, but uh, we murdered a podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or at least stab it a few times yeah it's um it was something in the organic chemistry of me and chris that i think we'll both end up uh, appreciating even probably more than we do now that uh it's mysterious i gotta be honest with you it's um it was a thing that uh, it wasn't conscious uh wasn't intentional it was something that happened in the music of our energies yeah that just went. It's fascinating. Like when you hear someone sing or uh, when a jazz band hits a rhythm or even when I'm on stage and I just catch a rhythm, it's like, D -d dude, I didn't make a choice there. I don't know what that is. I don't know how to explain it, but it comes from somewhere else. And uh, I don't know what it is. It's beyond my comprehension, but with Chris, uh, there was this magical chemistry that, uh, you know, I have chemistry with a lot of people and uh, it can be funny, and I enjoy I feel zero chemistry here, no, by the way. This is great. This is great. Yeah, it's a little bit more intelligent than what me and Chris did. Uh, but, you know, uh, me and Chris, uh, I think we connected in, in a, on, a, on the funny bone. Like, I, I, he, I found him so funny, and we found the same things funny. And from that, these organic expressions came from the, some part of our brains that was created from this chemistry. And yeah, we just developed this in language and this cult following and people were really upset when we ended, but it was the right thing to end because like all things that end, it was kind of done a few episodes even before we finished. And mm -hmm. I think we pulled the plug before it started rolling downhill. Like all, uh, you know, like all great flings, you know, there's your long relation, long marriages are boring and comfortable. The one you really like fucking always, yeah ends abruptly and sadly and uh but you always look back and you jerk off to it yeah. and uh but so you, so you guys made love we made yeah so it's like it was like a hot fling with mm -hmm. me and him and it was intense mm -hmm. and we burned the candle at both ends 
And it was, I think that podcast was meant to be three years and um, maybe people will go back and appreciate it and listen to it over and over again. And I think the new things we do, people will love. I, I, I'm doing long days now, that podcast, and people yeah. seem to enjoy I'm it. I'm really enjoying the long Thank days, you. yeah, yeah. Uh, on, on YouTube. I just found myself just like staring at, <laughs> at you uh, ranting for a same with Tim Dillon. I, I really enjoyed the, whatever those rants are, the genius of just like one thing after the other, but definitely the chemistry, almost as a study, I remember the reason I first started listening to it, I was trying to get an, a perspective on certain historical moments. <laughs> like it was interesting. I tuned in to learn history. I, yeah, I, I came for the history and like stayed for the the chaos and, and the crack open and clean out. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, this it was almost. I listen to Rogan like this sometimes. I'll I'll re-listen to an episode. Uh, to, th to try to understand why was this so fun to listen to? It's, it's almost like trying to analyze humor or something like that, but it's nice from, from a conversational perspective, like why was this so easy to listen to? And then and, uh, with History of Hyenas, like why is the chemistry so good? It's, it's so, it's weird. It's weird. Uh, Cause there's not many podcasts like that. I, I don't know any with the chemistry like that. Yeah. And it's interesting. And it's kind of sad that uh, that, that uh, the the fling with the prostitute in Vegas has to end, <laughs> you know, like that. But that's what makes it special. It's the Bukowski thing with the fog. the The British Office, one of my favorite shows, was was that. It ended very quick. You know, it's only a couple of seasons or something like that. And that was tragic. But that took guts to just end it. Given all the money you could have made, given all the, you just end it. And that's what makes it like truly special. Yeah, and I'll tell you, man, I'll just emphasize it because I marvel at it too. Because um, as a guy who tries to always figure out uh, what the causes of things, I got to be honest, man, looking back on that, even with retrospective wisdom, you know, that 2020 hindsight, we've been done a couple months now. It's um, it's something that I can't explain. Yeah, It's something that I don't know how you quantify it. I don't know how you describe it. It's It's musical. It's really kind of rhythmic, so... Maybe a, maybe like a Netflix show about history. That's that's in the that that's in the future. That maybe, with, yeah. the two, with the two of you. Yeah, who knows? You you guys will meet like uh, with that the way you meet with a fling like a decade from now at, at a diner, and uh, you're both way fatter and uglier, <laughs> and and then you just reminisce over some cigarettes and coffee. That could be. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. But uh, it's definitely a classic podcast that people can go back and appreciate. It's fast paced and it was unique. What was it like to research for? Uh, I mean, it was really scholarly, the, the depth of research that you yeah. performed. Uh, it uh, sometimes felt like you almost read an entire Wikipedia article <laughs> beforehand. <laughs> Or like exactly <laughs> true. Uh, we were we were uh, one uh, fan. We attracted such funny people to that podcast, and the fans were so funny. And one fan called us, nicknamed us Wikipedia sluts, <laughs> and so it just stuck. Yeah, we just would read Wikipedia. I would do a lot more research than Chris. Yeah, and uh, so I would actually, uh, you know, once in a while he'd, he'd get into it too. But for very interesting episodes, I got I got some 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 subject matter would just pull me in, yeah. like. Bernie Madoff, just the thick of one that was recent. It was one of our last ones. And I think one of our better episodes. And I'm glad that uh, it kind of ended after that because it was rare. To, I think we started to slip a little bit. 
Um, I got fascinated and I got, I did a lot of research for Bernie Madoff, but usually, yeah, we'd pull up Wikipedia and we'd have fun. We were sort of the antithesis of Dan Carlin. I mean, you went to Dan Carlin for uh, accuracy and, and thoughtfulness and you went to us for, it was a hang with history. Was, that's why History Hyenas was such an appropriate name because it was, it was <laughs> a little bit of history. Some, some episodes were more hyena, yeah. more wild and a little history, and some were a little more dense, like the Battle of Crete and less hyena. So it, you, were, you were always going to get both. You were either <laughs> going to get a majority of one or the other. Yeah, and Dan Carlin's the lion, I guess. Yeah. I and uh, you guys are <laughs> predictably good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what what are your thoughts about... I mean, he's a storyteller, too. He gets a lot of criticism for the from the historians, quote-unquote. That's why he likes to not... He keeps saying he's not a historian, but what's your... Um, what are your thoughts about uh, hardcore history with Dan Carlin? Like, was he an inspiration to the, <laughs> the podcast you were doing, uh, or, or or like an a counter, like a, almost like reverse psychology inspiration, where you wanted to do some kind of opposing type of podcast in history, or was history always just like a a, a launching pad to just talk shit about human nature? More the latter. I wasn't even aware of his podcast when we started. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And uh, so we it was just very organic. Again, like the chemistry, me and Chris became very good friends. We started the podcast. First, we did a web series called Bay Ridge Boys, which mm -hmm. has its sort of little cult following. We did like five episodes and ended it. Um, and then we did the podcast. And uh, hyenas were my favorite animal. And I talk about them passionately. And I told Chris about them. And then he started appreciating them. And we both love history. I majored in history. It's one of the things I love. I go to museums all the time. I go to hist I do history tours. So does he. And so it was just sort of a natural, let's do a history podcast. And it gave us something to talk about each episode to sort of lean our, you know, hang our hats on and, and riff off of. So it had nothing to do with Dan's. What I think about Dan's, I think it's great. I think even if He's inaccurate uh, in the opinions uh, of the historical community. It starts conversations, which is good. It's like this thing where people go, oh, it's dangerous rhetoric. It's like, no, rhetoric only becomes dangerous when education fails. What's going on in America is education has failed. So if you call someone online dangerous, it's not him that's dangerous. It's the fucking stupid people that's dangerous. And it's the fault of this country. We didn't listen to Aristotle. The future of a civilization <laughs> depends on public education. Yeah. And we failed. Education has failed. Kids are kids are not interested in shit. And um, so well, in some sense, those uh, like Dan's podcast and podcast can be incredibly educational. That's he's a uh, the storytelling that pulls you in. Ultimately, leads to you internalizing these stories and like remembering them and and thinking through them and all those kinds of things. That is much more powerful than any book on history that's accurate. I think often it inspires you to go learn more. Learn so it's like, more. I know we did that. I mean, you know, I people would go, hey, I went and learned about this because they knew with us there was no pretense, which was great, that we had no standard. So it's like nobody came to us for historical accuracy. But I was kind of turned on by the fact that it inspired people to go learn about this mm -hmm. stuff or to at least know, like Battle of Crete, like you said, a very underappreciated battle. Um, even Winston Churchill said, uh, from here on, we will no longer say that uh, Greeks fight like heroes, but heroes fight like Greeks. I mean, it was a monumental battle and, um, you know, not talked about enough. And I, it, it, our podcast would inspire people to go actually learn more, to go listen to Dan Carlin or to go pick up a book or to do research on their own. And so I think podcasts, Dan Carlin's obviously much more accurate than us, but 
it's good that people are going to podcasts like yours and to learn shit. Joe was is really like the progenitor of that. I mean, you know, having intellectuals on and getting the public interested with this new medium um, in in people who are intelligent. It's nice because yeah. you know what the mainstream press pushes out is horseshit, gorgeous horseshit. <laughs> it's got a beautiful veneer but no substance, and so this this is a nice pushback. Yeah, the authenticity of Joe's show. I mean, I'm through. I started listening from the very beginning. You know, doing my gr in grad school. You know, I like a technical person, and he just pulled me in and made me curious to learn about all kinds of things, and use my own critical reasoning skills on some of the bullshit guests he's had and some of the most inspiring guests he's had. So uh, teach you to think. Can you? Uh, I don't know much about Bernie Madoff as a small oh, tangent. Can you? Can you tell me who the hell is Bernie Madoff? Oh, Bernie Madoff is the goat, the greatest <laughs> thief of all time, dude. Um, hedge fund guy ran a hedge fund and uh, pulled a, stole the most money in the history of America. I mean, a con artist, and um, he does. People obviously, he's become he's a household name because of the magnitude of his crime. But you got to appreciate again. You got to appreciate what went into this and how long he was able to pull it off uh, by tricking the smartest and richest people in the world. And a uh, brilliant scam. The con man, uh, con man is short for confidence man. And it, it came from, yeah, a con man, basically they, they exude confidence and they trick people by playing on their ego and blind spots. And it, uh, the, the word comes from a guy, I can't remember where, but what he, what he used to do, I can't remember the guy's name, you know, whatever. You can Google it, con man. But it's very interesting. The, the first con man that is on record, what he would do, he would go to very rich people and he'd be very well-dressed, right? And he'd go, he'd say, I bet you, you you don't have the confidence to give me your watch. Mm -hmm. And he would plan the egos of these very powerful and rich people and they would give him the watch for some reason, some sort of reverse psychology bullshit. And he'd take the watch and he would just steal it. Because <laughs> so, basically saying like, I don't, you don't have the confidence to give me the watch because you don't, I don't know. You don't think I'm going to give it back. And he would just take it. Yeah. So Bernie Madoff was a very sophisticated con man. And again, we were talking about people pretending to be the opposite of what they are. Bernie hid his uh, thievery in how available he was to his clients, how he would show up at every bar mitzvah, every birthday. He was always available for their phone calls. And he uh, played on their egos. He made it so people were wanted to invest in him. Mm -hmm. Like they were competing. He made it very exclusive. He, he wouldn't just take anyone. And there was a method behind that madness because he wanted the whales that wouldn't notice that he was he was he had this pyramid scheme going. And so what he would do is he would just rob from the richer and he just kept, it was like he'd pay back the richer with the guy who was a little less and it was a pyramid scheme. And um, he was able to do it for so long and steal so much money and he would win people over with the scheme because with that scheme, he was the only guy who could provide, who could guarantee like a 1% return, even during times of recession. And because he was such a good con man, he hijacked people's reasoning with his charm. Yeah. And that's what con artists do. That's what psychopaths do. They're so fucking charming. Yeah. They get you in that Volkswagen Beetle because if they use their reasoning for one second, they'd go, hey, Nobody can provide 1% returns during recessions. Yeah. How the fuck is this guy doing it? I'll tell you how he's doing it. He's stealing from another guy to pay <laughs> you. You fucking idiot. So charisma is essential to that. You know, maybe you can help explain something to me, something I have been affected I'm by. Be way too loud for your listeners. There's going to be comments like, tell this guy to calm down. I'm Just sorry, I'm Greek apostolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> 
No, that's beautiful. I love it. This is something that I have been thinking about and have encountered indirectly is Jeffrey Epstein. And I have a sense because of MIT, because of all the other people that have been uh, touched, the wrong term, by Jeffrey Epstein in the sense that- Literally touched. Literally yeah. and figuratively. Yeah. And it always felt to me like there's not a deep conspiracy. I don't know. I don't know. But it felt to me like it's not some deeply rooted conspiracy where like Eric Weinstein thinks that there's some probability that uh, that uh, Jeffrey Epstein is a front for like an intelligence agency, whether it's Israeli or uh, the CIA, I don't know, but is a front for something much, much bigger. And then I always thought that he's just, maybe you can correct me, but more of the Bernie Madoff variety, where he's just a charismatic guy who uh, may be a psychopathic in some sense. So, you know, also a pedophile, but just charismatic and is able to convince people of that 1% of any idea that uh, in, the, in the case of scientists is able to convince these people that their ideas matter. Uh, so one thing scientists don't really, you know, despite what people say, I don't think they care about money as much as people think. I mean, people are ridiculous when they think that. Yeah, that's why people get into science for the money. Yeah, right. The personalities that get into science are obsessed with mon minutia and mon they, they do the scientific method. You know how boring that is? Yeah. Like you have to have a love for it yeah, exactly. in order to do it. But the love thing, truth. The, what drives you is for your ideas to be then heard. And when a, when a rich guy comes over, probably super charismatic, is going to tell you that your ideas, uh, especially so for some of these outsiders at MIT, at Harvard, at, at Caltech, all these like uh, sort of uh, big science, like uh, physics, biology, artificial intelligence, computing uh, fields, to hear somebody say that your ideas are brilliant ideas matter it's pretty powerful especially when you've been an outsider like he's talked to a bunch of people who were who had outsider ideas you know the, the 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 big negative for me of modern academia is that most people actually like most communities most people think the same and there's just these brilliant outsiders and the outsiders are just uh derided and so when you have jeffrey epstein like a hyena sorry sorry Sorry, uh, going from on the outside and picking off these brilliant minds that are the outsiders, he can use charisma to convince them to, uh, to, to collaborate with him, to take his funding, and then thereby he builds a reputation, like uh, slowly accumulates these people that actually results in um, a network of like some of the most brilliant people in the world, you know, and then pulls in people like Bill Gates and I don't know, political figures, I tend to believe that one one person can do that. Yeah, I mean, look at Hitler. Charisma is, is blinding. I think that's what con men, speaking of Bernie Madoff, that's one of their major tools is flattery, just glib, superficial yeah. charm. It creates those blind spots. Yeah. People wanna hear how great they are. They wanna be flattered. It, it, it takes your defenses down, plays to our ego. The, the how much we're all just pieces of garbage and want to hear how great we are. We want that love from our mother and our father. It, it's Freudian. And and they know because they're not burdened with that need, yeah. they're not burdened with that uh, empathy or emotions and they just see things very calculatively. Um, they play, they know that we're prey in their game and they use that against us. And that is why someone who is not that intelligent like Hitler 
can probably convince a lot more intelligent people, you know, and that's why we can't give Tim Dillon power because, you know, he already stands on a stage. I mean, if we let that guy, I mean, he will just take over a country and everyone who can't cook well will be eliminated. Yeah. So it's like- um, I wonder why he keeps complimenting me when we're in private. Exactly. Be careful. He, he looks at me just, your, your, I like your suit. I like the cut of your jib. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you I be careful of that kid. He's Hitler. <laughs> But it's crazy to think Clip about. Clip that, please, <laughs> internet. I mean, but, I mean, Quentin Tarantino said it to bed. I mean, in, in his script, personality goes a long way, dude. Yeah. I mean, personality can tr can usurp common sense and reason of the smartest people. These absolute smartest people can be hypnotized. It's sort of like a, a sexy woman. It's like um, you can just it just you can be tricked because we have such a blind spot for uh, you know for uh, for flattery. Yeah, I wonder, I think there's a BBC documentary on, uh, I think it's called something like Charisma, Hitler's Charisma or something like that. That's quite, I mean, that one focused more about the power of his speeches. But I wonder if most of the success or the rise of Hitler and the Third Reich had to do with the charisma of Hitler when he's alone in a room with somebody, with the generals, just one-on-one. -on -one. Like, I wonder, I wonder if that's the essential element of just being able to just look into a person's eyes, like flatter them or whatever is needed right, to earn their trust and then convince them of anything you want. Right. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Cause that's, uh, that's the one piece of history we don't have. We don't know. We don't know. We do know that the kid crushed. I mean, he was a headliner. He got up there and his, oh, his, his hair would flop around. I mean, he, crushed dude. yeah there's certain elements about nationalism and pride that are really powerful like a lot of us uh humans i think long for that for the feeling of belonging and when some charismatic leader makes us feel like we belong to a group the uh the amount of evil we can do to other humans because of that especially it's when endless. you give people a scapegoat nobody wants to look in nobody wants to do the work to be better or look at where they messed up why does it always have to be the jews that are the scapegoat? Uh, you know <laughs> it's like get over it guys <laughs> i mean it's like you, they killed jesus you get over it yeah okay it's a long time ago i mean move on i'm jewish i understand because we do run the central banks and uh, and the weather and the weather yeah <laughs> don't forget about the weather that's a big one that's a funny one that people created like who gives a shit well, what is the weather like what's the importance of the weather oh, the Jews made it rain outside good you gotta fuck you know they made it snow okay you get a day off thank the Jews yeah it's like yeah there's certain conspiracies that make me like flat earth like what what's the motive like what who what's the motivation for lying that the earth is round like what's the conspiracy yeah what like, does what, anyone get out of that yeah what is exactly the pro, uh, the profit <laughs> what's, what's the yeah the, what's the strategy uh, do you have any from a historical perspective or just a human perspective, conspiracy theories you connect with, or you're not necessarily conspiratorial? I'm uh, I'm not necessarily conspiratorial. Um, nobody cares that much, um, but there, <laughs> <laughs> but then you, you know what happens is you find out this one or this two. Uh, and you start questioning everything. And you start questioning everything, man. It's like, you know, the Vietnam War started, that was a lie. Um, that was a false flag. And then yeah. next thing you know, everything's a false flag. There are some strange things on 9-11. Um, you know, there's some strange things from a scientific perspective. I'm no scientist, but it's like, you know, yeah, three steel-framed uh, skyscrapers falling on the same day in the same way. Yeah. A lot of people say, oh, it was the, it, they were hit by planes. It's like, yeah, but that's not where they fell. They fell because of fires 
and usually, not usually, all the time, except for three times. And there was buildings that have burned for longer than that. Um, and there might be good explanations, but the lack of transparency, it's like, I feel like government- And building seven's weird. I mean, the way it yeah, kind of died, just a neat, just a neat, whew, the physical, I mean, you're a scientist, is that- Well, I don't, I-, I Is there resistance from the steel? I mean, so, no. Not, free fall not, seems Not weird. all scientists know everything. I'm just a computer guy. Okay, because I had some <laughs> questions I wanted to ask you about my, about my biology, but I don't know. Yeah, so exactly. I don't understand biology. I don't understand the melting point of steel. I don't, but I'm just a common sense human mm -hmm. that looks at government and institutions when they try to communicate and there's a certain human element where you can sense that there's dishonesty going on. That dishonesty might not be deeply rooted in a conspiracy theory and something malevolent. It might just be rooted more likely to me in a basic fear of losing your job. Right. So when you have a bunch of people that are afraid of losing their job, you know, and they just don't want to, uh, like the origins of the virus, whether it came from a lab or, or not, you know, that's a pretty, I know a lot of biologists behind closed doors that that say it's it's very likely it was leaked from the lab right but like they don't want to talk about it because there's not good evidence either way it's mostly you're just using common sense so they're waiting for good evidence to come out uh, in either direction but just like nobody in positions of uh institutional like centralized power wants to just honestly say we don't know mm. or on the point of masks or all those kinds of things to say yeah, you know, here's the best evidence we have. We're not sure. We're trying to figure that out. We're desperately trying to figure that out. Or just like honesty, uh, especially in the modern day, that's the hope I have for the 21st century is people seem to detect bullshit much, much better because yeah. of the internet. Internet, yeah. Yeah, and we, we seem to- But they to also believe crazy shit too. There's no yang without a yang, I guess. But the, I think the conspiracy theories arise only when the people in positions of power in government and institutions are full of shit. Mm -hmm. Like the air will be taken out of the conspiracy theories if the people in elected power would be much more honest. Like yes. just like real. You have people like Andrew Yang, whatever you think about him, just more honest. He, he just like says whatever the hell uh, comes to mind. By the way, he's running for New York mm -hmm. mayor. Mayor, yeah. Do you have opinions? Yeah, it's no good. I like Andrew Yang and it's no good. I, I'd be honest with you. I'm a, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I mean, I'm a New Yorker. Well, you're a New Yorker, so nothing's good. Well, something is good. Okay. And talking on, let's be honest about New York. Yes. Uh, it's a very socially liberal place. It is the head of the snake. New York is the country. If New York, when New York's not doing good, country's not doing good. Um, it's the most important city, DC, New York. It's really Rome, be honest. It's, it's, uh, I, maybe I'm biased. I don't know. But no. <laughs> we just did New Yorkers, we walk around everywhere and we go, this is just like New York, but not New York. It's, um, <laughs> but and New York needs, and I'm a guy who leans left. I, you know, I just, I lean left and that's just what it is. A dictator? Is that where you're going? No, <laughs> we going need, back to Stalin we need, it's a money town. Let, let's be, come on, man. I mean, New York is a money town. And uh, Wall Street, and then when AOC and her cronies um, at the local level rejected that Amazon thing, you're going like, "What do you think makes cities? And what, what, what what's going to create jobs in the 21st century? What do we need? More nail salons? More yeah. pizza places? I mean, we're living in the tech revolution, and you know, whatever your opinions are about Jeff Bezos, that's the world yeah. tech." And they want to come here. Of course, you give them tax breaks. That's why any companies go anywhere. She's so fucking utopian, and that that progressive wing is so utopian, and that always 
ends in disaster because it's not rooted in reality. It doesn't accept the reality that people are self-interested. Now they're going to do this 14%, 15% tax hike on people making a million dollars more. In New York City, a million dollars is not that much. Mm -hmm. So people are going to flee New York. The tax base is going to flee. New York's going to fall to shit like it did before. So you're saying it basically needs a more capitalist front, like capitalistic type of thinker. Bloomberg, Giuliani, when he was still sane and his hair wasn't melting off his face. Hmm. Prosecutor, you need a tough. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what's happened. That guy's lost it, but it's fun. Yeah, it's fun to watch. Yeah, it's fun to watch him be just like uh, Trump's lackey. Like, yeah, boy, whatever you want, boss. I'll just say whatever you want, boss. Uh, but New York is a money town that needs a money guy and sort of more of a Republican. I have to say, on the local level, as more of a guy who leans left, I'll just be honest. It it's a tough city that needs a tough mayor, not some guy who's going like, I understand, we all need free money, it, you know. Andrew Yang, I think, is right in the big picture because all the real jobs are somewhere else. And you look at those Asian cities, you go like, oh, that's what our cities used to look like at the Industrial Revolution. You know, there was like, there was jobs and people were making things here. And now you look at those cities in Asia and you're going like, wow. And then you go to Detroit and you're like, yeah, we're done. You go to Cleveland, you go, we, we're done. So I, I don't actually, it's, it's funny. The, the, the reason I really like Andrew Yang is I've learned a lot every time he talks. Like, it's not his opinions. He's just giving a lot of data. Yeah, like information, smart. which I- Just start a podcast. Don't run for mayor. Well, yeah, that's true. He already has a podcast, I think. Yang, Yang Speaks. Who doesn't? Who oh, doesn't? Fucking, who doesn't now? <laughs> that's the way we communicate. I don't even talk to people unless it's on a podcast. <laughs> well, listen, man, I'm, a, I'm not going to criticize that because there is something, like I talked to my dad on, on a podcast in, for four hours, and I'm not sure I would, <laughs> I would ever talk to him in the way we talked without the podcast. What does he do you that? Uh, physicist. Oh shit. But I'll like, out. yeah, it's uh, episode 100 and, you know, I, uh, the, the way I recorded that podcast is I tried to put my ego aside. It's actually really tough to talk to your dad, mm-hmm. especially cause you're giving him a platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, so at that time, there's already a bit of a platform for this podcast. Mm-hmm. And so there's this, as a son, you think like, oh, here it goes with this bullshit again. Like that's the natural son thought mm-hmm. you have. But at the same time, I wanted to, the way I thought about it is in 20 years when I look back, like I want to do a conversation where I'm happy with it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I want to make him shine. But I also called him out on like, why were you so distant? Like, like all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, wow. it was very difficult to do, but it was really important to do. And I don't think I'd be able to do it without a, without a microphone. Right. Yeah. Listen, how often do we sit there and just focus our attention, just look at the other person? I, right. I, I don't know, man. I, this is not even recording right now. <laughs> I, just invited, I just invited you over. Just so we could actually, you're right. The podcast does make, like I listen, I've been listening to every word you've been yeah. saying. And if we weren't doing a podcast, I might be looking at my phone or yeah. being self-conscious about something else or yeah. nervous or anxious. You're anxious. zoomed in, especially with people close to you. I mean, that was, I recommend that actually for people uh, to talk to their family on a podcast like it, or like it, fake or not. That's really powerful. Uh, it made me realize that there's a clear distinction between the conversations we usually have with humans and those we have when a podcast is being recorded. Um, what the fuck were we talking on before that? Uh, I, I knew you were going to lose your train of thought on that one because th- that's a big one. There's emotion behind that one. Com- a podcast with dad is going to take that's going to take you to a place. I took you to a place. 
It took what? you outside of interviewer. New York. I went New to York a place. New York and Yang. Yeah. Yeah, New York and Yang. Yeah. Uh, so the data, one of the things that really surprised me about, <laughs> I like the psychoanalysis you just threw yeah, in there. I knew that was, that, you know, yeah, that took, you, that took you to a place. Uh, so uh, Angie Yang mentioned- Do you respect me now, Dad? <laughs> MIT, is it enough? It's, Fucking million people listening to this. Uh, I got 14 Rogans. Is it enough, Dad? I'm creating robots. Is it enough for you? It's not enough. <laughs> That's what drives you, probably. That's probably what drives me. That's what gives meaning to life, is it's never enough. And uh, I hope to pass that on to my kids one day, uh, that nothing's ever enough. Whether they're a robot or human, right? Your kids. Most likely. Yeah. Let's be honest. Robot. You might call one of your robots. You, you love your robot? Are you starting to love your... Is it going to be like that Pygmalion thing? You create them and then they kill you, but even while they're killing you, you got a tear rolling. The tear. Right? A slow one. One tear. One, one tear. tear. And just yeah. Why are you but, doing this Frankenstein? Like, why? <laughs> why? But I loved you. Those would be the last words yeah. out of my mouth. Uh, but Andrew Yang mentioned something on the, um, that it cost uh, uh, four hundred thousand dollars, over four hundred thousand dollars per year to support one person in prison in New York. Like when I heard that number, it was really confusing to me. Like that, it cost that much. 400k per person uh and it was really refreshing to hear a politician describe a particular problem with data that this is this prison industrial complex whatever the hell it is and whether the solution it's unclear what the solution is i think he has solutions but just the honesty of presenting that information was refreshing and i'm not sure a capitalistic person would solve that those kinds of problems he might make worse and i'm not you know I'm a huge fan of capitalism. I think, uh, I think the free market is is the way we make progress in this world. But it seems to go wrong in certain directions, mm -hmm. like the military-industrial complex, the prison, anything that ends with industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And so I'm I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure if all of the problems. You're basically saying, let's put New York's problems aside we need to have New York shine first to do what it does best. Essentially, yeah. And then the problems will fix them. Well, the, and then we can fo focus on the problems. But if you just say like, here's a problem, here's a problem, here's a problem. Let's make sure we have the safety net that protects us against all of these kinds of problems. That's not going to, that's going to kill the city, the spirit of the, uh, of the city. That is in your biased opinion, the Rome of the world. Yeah. That said, a lot of people are fleeing New York. Yeah, that, that's why I say it. Uh, that's the reality of the situation is, you know, um, I, I'm all for the public good, but yeah, there needs to be, back to that Greek expression, pan metronariston. I, I also think the free market is responsible for progress. I think it's the most natural thing, the thing that's most aligned with human nature, which is self-interest. And um, which I believe, not to the extent that Ayn Rand would, but I do believe people are mostly self-interested, uh, especially with one gun to the head. Um, morals are out the window. You know, it's about survival. So, you know, create a system that respects that and acknowledges that. But socialism works very well, at least right now, as a check, as to temper uh, the excesses of capitalism. And in certain scenarios is uh, the more appropriate system, you know, in a vacuum. So one being prisons or, you know, uh, you know, uh, governance, uh, you know, uh, parks. Maybe even, well, and this is a difficult one, but in healthcare, Healthcare. It's, it's, it's unclear what to write. There's a lot of debates there. Yeah, doctors want votes. <laughs> yeah, it's, so I guess you're voting for AOC, you're saying. No, I'm not voting for AOC, but I do 
it's just a tough one. That's a tough one. But ultimately, the Hippocratic Oath, it's like, how do you turn people away, man? How do you do that to people? It's like, it's it's a tough thing to uh, to reconcile helping people, curing people with the uh, the marketplace. It's just, I can understand why that one's so tough. And then you got hypochondriacs, of course, who drain the system. You know, like people who are have anxiety, like me, who had COVID and called fourteen. Uh, you know, I called fourteen ambulances. So, and then of course we're fat, and the free market made us fat because it played uh, the marketing made us want all this junk food, and that's a burden on the healthcare system. So we got to do something about that. We got to get creative. We need new thinkers. I'll be one of them. When you go to a fast food restaurant, you stand on a scale. If you're over a certain thing, you can't be served. It's good for the healthcare system. You know, you just hand it a salad and say, sorry, this burger's illegal for right now. If you achieve these certain oh, uh, BMI goals, then you can you can have this burger. But right now, you can't. And that's where the state's important. Yeah. Okay, so, to regulate our freedoms. No Slurpees, I'm with you, Bloomberg. <laughs> well, I'm with you. To go along, I think the salads are too expensive. They should be subsidized. If you, if you go to like a fast food joint... Uh, the burger is always going to be cheaper than the salad. Yeah. And this does not make sense. No, we should run on this platform. I'll be your vice president. Yeah. We'll ban burgers for uh, for people over a certain weight and make and salad so cheap. Three-day work weeks. Why has that wait, not happened Wait, wait, okay. Where are you going with this one? <laughs> Dude, good for the economy. Stimulates the economy, right? More shifts, yeah. creates more jobs, more people spending because they have more leisure time, boosts the leisure economy, yeah. you know? Why what, are we still if, doing the five-day work week? That, that, was, that was tempered from the seven-day work week. That was- so the seven, it used to be seven day work. It used to yeah. be like, and people who are just these libertarians, it's like, come on, dude, what, what, what is this fresh? Are we freshmen in college? Yeah. You're gonna, you, you, we're gonna talk about Ayn Rand next. Like, let's talk about reality, okay? And human nature. People are fucking greedy. They're, they lie. They, you know, there's no end to up, which is one of my favorite expressions. Um, no so, end to up. No end to up. There's no end to up. Uh, can we dissect that? Yeah. From a Randian perspective. There's no end to up, which is, uh, you just keep going. It's never enough. The human oh, never flaw, enough. it's never enough. No end to up. More, more, more. And, you know, you have to reconcile your fact that you're going to die. So, like, this no end to up thing is that balance is is just as valuable as progress. So we have to reconcile those two things and put them on a seesaw and figure out how to get two people who have the equal weight to, to keep it like that. And that's the goal. And it constantly vacillates. Uh, according to the time, you, sometimes you need a little more socialism. Sometimes you need a little more capitalism. Mm-hmm. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta fly the plane, man. You gotta fly the plane, dude. What's your um, looking back at history, hyenas? Is there a moment, time period, in history, a person in history you, that's most fascinating to you? You mentioned Bernie Madoff. Maybe second to Bernie Madoff. <laughs> is there in the Battle of Crete? Is there something that you've always been curious about, even if it's something you haven't actually researched that well yet? Just something that pulled at your curiosity, that uh, instructed the way you think about the world. An individual or an event uh, or? Uh, event, individual, uh, you know, yeah, moment in history or a person in history. Um, there's a few, but, uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth, uh, the Elizabethan era, you know, the sun never sets in the British Empire, very successful empire. Uh, what an absolute success story that is is for a leader and a woman um 
Can you tell a little bit about her story? Well, you I know, actually don't she, know much about the British Empire. Yeah, she Empire. had a good run. I think it's like 70 years. You know, there's Shakespeare. They, you know, the, oh, I guess, what's the word? Pax Romana, the, the, the period of Rome that was at peace. And they flourished, like a couple of emperors like Trajan or some good ones. And I think he was part of the Pax Romana that sort of just a peace and a comfortable flourishing time. And England uh, had sort of that in their empire under her successful reign she murdered her cousin she you know the movies there's uh, you know um Kate Blanchett plays her and and does so and she didn't win the Oscar because fucking Gwyneth Paltrow put a put a British accent on in Shakespeare in Love it's a tragedy why do I know this because I'm not a full man I'm a comedian which means I do skits and I perform um and I uh, Kate Blanchett's an incredible actress in great movies she was just so and here's the thing she she never got married. She was a she was so um, astute at public relations, and 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 imagine how strong you got to be as a woman to lead the greatest empire maybe known to man at the time, and to do so so successfully. How Machiavellian you have to be. How idealist you have to be. How much of a good marketer you have to be. Propaganda machine was on point. She was married to England. She was adored. The way she adorned herself. You walked in, you're like, holy man, a god just walked in here. And of course she got fucked. I mean, who doesn't fuck? We all fuck. Mm -hmm. Even robots one day will fuck. Yeah. But she was she she did that propaganda thing. And and historians aren't uh haven't they haven't decided this, but I believe she fucked. And I believe she did that as a tool of propaganda. I'm married to England. So you, uh, oh, you're directly referring to like using sex as a way to manipulate people. Well, she, her, she was known as like the the virgin queen, mm -hmm. and uh, and her thing was like I'm married to England. Like I can't be distracted by man or woman. Blah blah blah. She never had any kids. Nothing. I think she did that as a tool of manipulation. Yes. Which you need. Uh, rulers need to, you know, Obama made you feel good and then he went and bomb, carpet bombed everywhere. You need to feel good about your guy, no yeah. matter how evil they are. And she was fucking a dictator. Yeah. But when you look back at her, everyone's like, oh my God, she was so great. The horror and the shit that she had to do, she didn't put that in the history books, but that's what probably was part of what made her successful. And um, she's a fascinating character to, to ponder because she was so successful and 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 England flourished so much. And uh, it's just fascinating to me because she was the ver great virgin queen. And can you think of a, there's no other woman who was that, say, I mean, Angela Merkel, I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, there's nobody who comes close and defeating the Spanish Armada, I think that happened under her. I mean, I'm no professional historian, but I mean, the, the woman crushed. And- uh, Do you think it's more effective to lead by love, which it sounds like what she did from the PR perspective or by fear? Where do, where do you land on that Dude, with Machiavelli? No that's a great question. Um, I'm no, we got to ask Joe. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this is interesting because I think leading in the 21st century in whatever way is, is different. I think it's very difficult to lead by fear. I mean, I'm, that's why I, fa I find Putin fascinating and like really fascinating. Like, is he a relic of another era? Or is he something that will still be necessary in the coming decades for certain nations? I think he's a, I don't think he's a relic from another era. I think his background, I think he is who you think he is because his background was in espionage. His background was in subterfuge and espionage. I think I've said the word subterfuge maybe 10 times now. <laughs> but 
he uh you like big words yeah, you're intellectuals you know, i just i'm sitting here with you it's my, it's time to flex <laughs> um but he um he's very good at that right like uh controlling people with psychology and even if you look at the way he sort of used the internet and um ha- has sort of been you know gotten into the citizens of other countries opinions and it's very kgb he also looks great without a shirt on a pony on a horse on a horse yeah yeah <laughs> I thought he would choose a pony because a pony's smaller. Makes him look would uh, would you would you put Queen Elizabeth as the greatest leader of all time? Like Probably, you- yeah. I think as a woman, and you look at uh, you look at the the length of the reign. I think it's like seventy something years or something like that that she reigned. Success, man. Success. She used the church. She used public psychology. Shakespeare, the greatest playwright of all time. Uh, under her reign, you know, people were going to plays, and and uh, it was a it was a successful run, and she was marauding everywhere else, marauding and and culling resources for the empire, and just say uh, absolute successful. It's even uh, a token of her success. We don't consider her a dictator. Yeah, she's a dictator. You know, she was queen. I this is my thing I love about the feudal system that the, these fucking countries still have feudal systems. They're celebrating a horrible thing. Divine right of kings, oppression. Kings were dictators. And now they have fucking ceremonial. Why don't yeah. we have a ceremonial Fuhrer? What is in Germany? He doesn't do any of the bad stuff. He just rolls around and does this yeah. and shit. I mean, it's like, what the fuck? There's no difference between a Hitler yeah. and a fucking king. They did the same horrible shit. Why not a fucking ceremonial conqueror? Alexander the Great walks in, rapes a little bit, but it's all fun. It's for ceremony. He represents the country. Macedonia is Greek. It's interesting to see that uh, some you're starting to see a bit of that in Russia with Stalin, actually. The celebration of a, of a man that helped win the Great Patriotic War. Uh-oh, yeah. Right, so like you, you're already starting to see that. It's very possible in history books, he'll be seen as uh, maybe like a Genghis Khan type of character, and you forget the millions that he tortured. Right. So you're one of the most successful and brilliant people the world has ever seen, so you're the good person <laughs> to ask, uh, for advice, you know, there's a lot of young people that look up to you. Uh, God bless their souls and hearts. Made the right choice. <laughs> what advice would you give to a young person, maybe to yourself, to a young version of yourself, you know, and just how to live a successful, a good life? Be doggedly you. I think uh, the magic happens when you are stubbornly, doggedly you, and you meet other people who are doing the same, and. Um, the real magic of life, the real true currency in this ephemeral life is sort of the communication that happens between people. Uh, that's the real currency. Friendships, love, it's it's cliche, but it's a, I think the meaning of life is to experience, to experience love. And uh, I think uh, people often mistake, maybe it's because of Hollywood films and things like that, that love is a feeling, but it's not, it's an action. So uh, that took me a while to learn. And I think that's why I've made decisions since that I think have been good for me and healthy for me. Love is an action. Uh, people can say things, you can feel things. Um, that doesn't mean they're necessarily real. It's all chemical reactions. It's all um, tied to our immaturity and uh, psychological issues and uh, survival. But action, when some, when you do things, when you act out of love and you the that's that's what it's about. Is there uh, times when you were younger where you were kind of dis- dishonest 
with who you are to yourself yeah. yeah in terms of like what what kind of things did you have to do to to shake yourself up and be like okay i thought um i thought i'm going to be a scientist but instead i i realized i'm going to do this yeah my parents going to make funny yeah my my comedy is a hard hard thing to explain to uh you know an immigrant mother who came here and under nazi occupied crete and became a human rights lawyer and lawyer and uh, my brother's a lawyer my father was a lawyer you know clawed his way up his dad was a was a um so your disappointment i'm the black sheep yeah my brother went to oxford georgetown law brown <laughs> 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 you know has a master's in you know good law degrees my mother has four law, four law degrees uh you know uh she was on the human rights commission in new york up for a judgeship under dinkins um wrote a you know uh, she was the editor of unitar she she wrote a seminal piece on the human rights of children for the united nations um and uh, yeah i was a comedian i was always a fuck up and uh the, the thing that i was best at the only thing i was ever decent at was just like making people laugh i don't know why i don't know where that comes from but uh was there ever a question or did was there a moment where you decided this is what i'm going to do there was a moment after i graduated college yeah but i i was thinking about all types of stuff that other people imposed on me and um i was honest with myself and uh, once i figured out it was an actual career path I wasn't even aware. Back then, the internet wasn't huge. You know, late 99, 2000, it wasn't big yet. So I, I didn't even, I, I thought Robin Williams was just like an actor. I didn't know there was comedy clubs and all. So once I learned that, I was just like, I tried it. I, I suffered from massive anxiety. I remember the first time I did comedy, my arms went numb. I started having a massive panic attack. I have my first set. I can show it to you. It's like, I just, I just- On video. Yeah, on video. Oh, I kept nice. going, thank you, thank you, thank you. And the reason why I kept saying thank you is because I forgot my whole jokes. I was so scared. Yeah. And then they laughed because of the amount of times I said thank you. Yeah. And then once they laughed, I was, I remembered the whole thing. And I did the five minutes and I remember getting off. And for a person who never felt like he had a place anywhere, nothing ever felt right. That felt like, okay, I found it. This is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. This is it. It was the only time in my life I felt that. I haven't felt it since. Never felt it before. So it's the only thing I can do. And um, yeah, I had that. You know, it's funny because there's uh, I have a similar experience, like immigrant family, and the world tells you to do certain things, and you think that's right, but but then you uh, put yourself in situations by luck, probably, where it's like, oh, this 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 feels right. I don't know what this means, but this feels right. I think the 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 biggest moment like that for me was uh, I don't know what to make of it exactly, but when I met Spot the robot, the legged robot, it was like five years ago. It felt like this the the depth of fascinating ideas that are yet to be explored with this thing. This felt like a journey. It was like a door that opened, and I was like, I don't want to be a professor. I, it, at that point, I realized I don't want to. Interesting do sort of uh, generic stuff. I want to do something crazy. I want to do something big. That's the reason I stepped away from MIT. That's the reason I have this burning desire to do a startup. That's the reason I came to Austin. Yeah, I don't know what the hell it all means, but you just kind of follow that. That's awesome. That sounds like you're following what's doggedly you. And also I think uh, just to just to piggyback off it, I think that means no matter what it is. Because I think our, our the American dream is sold like, hey, if you're not Beyonce or if you're not famous, you're not worth it. I hate that. And that's what I love so much about certain countries like Sweden. It's, a, it's like um, where everyone has healthcare and stuff like that because everyone's a little, is valued more. It's like whatever, if you want to be a doorman, do it. Like it's all the same. Prince was not happy 
there's no, just because you're rich or famous, you're still the same guy. Yeah. Well, your possessions are a lot little, you know, it's like, I, I, I have met some doormen, I have met some tax cabbers that, I, I lie to you not, are more fascinating. I have, comedians are horrible people. <laughs> some, I wanna get away from all of them. I have very few friends, Paul yeah. Verzi, Tim Dillon, who are comedians, because they're awful, awful people. Some of the people who you know the most, who are the most famous, are not who they say they are. Usually yeah. that's the case. They're putting on that public facade because they're fucking sociopaths. Yeah. And they're horrible people. And some of the most beautiful people I've met and the most interesting people I've met have regular jobs. There is no shame in any fucking job. We don't all have to be rappers with yeah. like rims. I, it's just a weird thing. Yeah, fame is, fame is a drug. And yeah, comedians, I agree with you. There's some part of me that knows that there'll be a moment in my life when I'm standing there with, with like a sword or a knife in my stomach and looking at Tim Dillon's smiling face <laughs> saying, uh, uh, you shouldn't have trusted me, you stupid fuck. So on that note, <laughs> Giannis, I've been a huge fan of yours. I love what you're doing with Long Days, now your new podcast. And um, I obviously love all the stuff you've done before with History Hyenas, the chemistry the the chemistry you have with yourself is also fun to watch so man i'm a huge fan it's a huge honor that you come down here Dude, thanks so much for talking to it, it means so much to me to hear you say that i really appreciate it. i'm a big fan of yours and having me on has been amazing and just thank you man thank you thanks, for uh, having me on and people if they want to watch my special it's called blowing the light it's on youtube and please come listen to long days of the podcast and uh, let's go eat some barbecue let's do it thanks for listening to this conversation with Giannis papas and thank you to wine access blinkist Magic Spoon, and Indeed. Check them out in the description to support this podcast. And now, let me leave you with some words from Karl Marx. Revolutions are the locomotives of history. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.